Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most high-profile, mind-boggling homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. Now, according to LegalDictionary.com, the word parasite is defined as the murder of a close relative. Now, this close relative could be your siblings, like a brother or sister, or the victim could be like an aunt, an uncle, a cousin, or any other close relative. And speaking of parasite cases and stuff like that, you you would think that um like the killing your parents or like the murder of something, you know, like a close relative that that would automatically warrant a life sentence. But apparently it don't, at least not in the state of Maryland. And mostly all of the murderers that have been profiled in this season have already either served their time, they've been released, they're on their way of being released, and um, they have moved on with their lives. And for those listeners who are truly familiar with me and my story, to answer your question that I keep getting, no, I will not be profiling or discussing the murder of my father because... That case has already been profiled for TV One several times, and that's pretty much old news now. You can already um, check that case out on um, my Payback episode or uh, my Justice by Any Means episode, or you can click on the episode um, entitled Why I Do What I Do uh, for this that has been featured on this podcast. But for this season, season eight, the focus or topic of discussion will be killers or murderers who, for whatever reason, have murdered their mother or their father or their grandparents. Basically, killers who have been accused and convicted of murdering somebody that raised them, that was responsible for nurturing them. Um, So for this season... Season 8, the killer that I'm going to profile is 16-year-old Lewin Carlton Powell III. And just like I have done in every single episode that has been featured on this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention Or basically it needs to be reopened or something because not a lot, if anything, is being done at all. Case basically just sitting there collecting dust. And the unsolved homicide that I'm going to profile for this episode is the shooting murder of 25-year-old Damian Ramos Raymond Drew. Now, when I... Me personally, I'm not speaking for everybody else. When I think about parasite cases in Maryland, there are only three top cases that stand out in my mind. One of them are one of them are um, Ross the Ross Telp case, 
which I already profiled for episode number four. And um, if you haven't checked out um, episode number four, Ross Telp was the dude who stabbed his mother basically and, and buried her body in Lincoln Park and because they had this argument over him scratching the hubcaps on her um, Suzuki socket truck. Anyway, there's um, that's one of them. There's the most well-known high-profile case of a parasite that we haven't um, discussed yet in Maryland. And it's probably the biggest case um, of parasite in Maryland. But I'm going to wait until the last episode of the season to profile that one. I bet many of you already know who that one is, but we'll see. And then there's the killer or murderer that I'm going to profile for this week's episode. And yikes, that's all I can say is like, wow. That's, that's all I can say about this one. And be prepared to disagree with me for some of my opinion or assessment of this one at the end. I'm going to start it off like this. A lot of parents don't play about their kids' education and their future, especially when it's considered to be a privilege to be in the United States getting an education that many people pay for, that many people damn near risk their lives to get over here to get. Some parents, they do not play about their kids' education. They will literally move or live in an area or neighborhood based strictly off of the school system in this state. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm one of them. I mean, I don't think I'm too extreme to demand that, you know, you get good grades and straight A's every day in school. You know, I mean, I, I don't I don't think I'm, you know, too extreme to demand that, you know, you get average grades. Okay. I mean, I, all I ask is that you get decent grades, that you act right in school. You know, I don't think I'm too bizarre like some parents I know. Like, for instance, I remember when I was a kid at Franklin High School. I was friends with this Asian girl who she was like literally terrified, mortified to go home to her parents because she got an A minus. I kid you not. She got an A minus on an exam instead of an A plus. I was like, look, how about I trade you this D for your A minus? <laughs> Honestly, the point I'm trying to make is that some parents, look, they just don't play that. And education is everything to them. And that's fine and dandy. But the problem is when all the pressure to be perfect and the pressure to succeed can that what if that backfires? All of that can backfire and it, it can just go wrong when it's like a pressure cooker. And that's what this next case is about. I mean, even as a kid, Lewin Carton Powell III, he was like the perfect child. Born to Jamaican immigrant parents who believed in ethics and hard work as a child. Lewin went to Padonia International Elementary School, which is a decent school, and practically all of Lewin's teachers commenting to the press that Lewin excelled at um, all of his grades. He had uh, uh, zero behavior problems. He was extremely polite. 
you could tell that he was being, you know, raised right. You can tell he was being raised with good values, uh, discipline, good manners. Yes, sir. You know, no ma'am, all of that stuff. Lauren was everything, everything every teacher ever dreamed of, one teacher said. Lewin's first grade teacher actually gave a comment to the press saying in her, in her words that he was one of the brightest, most promising students I ever taught. That's the only kid I ever rem remember saying, you will be my future president. Now, when Lewin made it to the sixth grade, because of his excellent grades, he earned a scholarship to the prestigious McDonough Boarding School in Owens Mills. Now, the McDonough School is, it's like a co-ed private school with grades. Um, they start off from uh, pre-K, pre-kindergarten, and they go all the way up to the 12th grade. About 75% of the high school's um, 1,300 students that live on campus um, during the week, um, then they go home on the weekends. It's like a boarding school. This is part of the school's five-day boarding program. McDonough is known for its horse riding trails, Olympic-sized pool, all of its sports playing fields, and tennis courts. Back in 2008, the annual tuition, tuition for high school kids was at least $20,000, but Lewin made it to the school on a scholarship. Lewin flooded his brain with honors and advanced placement classes and managed to survive his junior year with a 3.72 grade point average, which is pretty good to me. When Lewin moved out onto, you know, when he moved on to like the 10th grade as a sophomore, he added more activities to his already hectic schedule. Lewin was a member of the, the school's jazz band. He played baseball. He got his learner's permit. And when Lewin turned 16, he landed his first job at a local grocery store. He was an exceptional teen. Not a single complaint. Not a single blemish on his record. Nothing. The, he was like the perfect son. Or was he? Really? How long can you keep this up? Lewin's home life and upbringing was good and stable too. He lived with both his parents, who held good jobs. Lewin's father worked the evening shift, and Lewin's mother, 39-year-old, who was 39-year-old Donna Rosemarie Campbell Powell, she worked as an assistant claims adjuster for the Baltimore County Office of Budget and Finance. Lewin's parents had a stable marriage, and Lewin had the support of a large extended family with loving aunts and uncles. So, what went wrong? Don't it seem like that's the perfect, like things was going a little bit too good? Where were the flaws? Where were the cracks? Maybe Lewin was just too perfect, too good of a student. And inside Lewin, he was living the life that either he didn't want from himself or a life that he felt that he could not keep up with. Either way... Lewin seemingly snapped out of nowhere on May 13th, 2008. The day started off pretty normal as any other day in Lewin's house. Lewin's mother, she picked him up from, from the school bus stop and 
this particular visit was not a friendly visit. Donna started talking to Lewin about a call that she had received from the school earlier that day about Lewin's grades, which had been slowly falling. Mother and son started arguing in the car all the way to their um, to their home in the 1600 block of Alston Road in the Thornley of Riderwood neighborhood of Towson. Once they got inside the house, the argument continued, but the argument also turned physical. According to charging documents published in the Baltimore Sun, at first, Lewin started punching his mother with his fist in a complete rage. In shock, Donna took off running, trying to escape her son's massive blows to her face, and Donna ran, heading from the front door. But Lewin met his mother at the front door, blocked her exit, and started punching her in her head and face until she was in like a drunken daze. After Donna was dazed and sluggish, Lewin dragged his mother near the back door, grabbed an aluminum baseball bat that was kept near the door, and started beating his mother all throughout her body. Lewin chased his mother all throughout the house, swinging the bat when Donna tried to get away, and escape her son. I I, I I can't even imagine the shock that she must have went through. In a blind, fiery, fury rage, during the brutal beating on his mother, Lewin saw that his mother made a feeble attempt to defend herself, and she grabbed the knife. When he saw that she had grabbed the knife, that enraged him even more, and he knocked the knife out of her hand with one swing of that bat. This is mother and son. When Lauren realized that his mother wasn't moving anymore, he put a plastic bag over her head so none of her blood would drip all over the floor. Then he dragged his mother's body in the garage and hid her body under a blanket and some trash that was already in the garage. Just an hour earlier, he was sitting in the passenger seat talking to his mother and just like that, now she was dead. Th that That's how quick it can happen. That's what I mean by snapping. I mean, after beating his mother to death with the bat, Lewin cleaned up the house a little bit, then calmly went to his bedroom, take took the bat with him, and went to sleep in his room. That's psychotic. Now, mind you, I told you that Lewin's father worked the evening shift now all throughout the day he he slept this is what i can't get over but he apparently slept that whole evening and waited for his father to get home i know he had to think about what he had done you can't you can't tell me that ain't go through his mind that's a lot of time to think about what you have done i mean what the fuck went through his mind i would love to have asked him if i had the chance I mean, I would love to have asked him that. I mean, I know these these events just replayed over and over in his head while he slept. When Lauren's father came home from work that night around midnight, he was totally oblivious as to anything out of the ordinary, and he fell asleep on, on a couch in the living room while watching TV. Around 8 o'clock the next morning, Lewin's father was instantly woken out of his sleep when a bat came crashing down on his head.
he was horrified to see that his son was holding the bat screaming, I'm going to kill you. In complete shock and between the blows from the bat, Lewin's father later told the police that his son screamed at him that he had already killed his mother. Then Lewin started beating his father with the bat in the head in yet another blind rage. With the blows from with the blows from that bat coming at Lewin's father's head full force, Lewin's father knew that he had to react fast and he tried his best to convince Lewin that he was actually on his side. But Lewin was in a blind, built-up rage, chasing his father throughout the house, swinging at bat. Eventually, Lewin's father convinced him that he would help him get away or escape by going to the bank and giving him some money. So they made it to the backyard where they were supposedly heading to an ATM or a bank. Now, about the same time, early in the morning, Donna's co-workers had started getting concerned because Donna hadn't shown up for work yet, which was totally not like her. Donna was known for her superb work ethic, and even if she was going to be just five minutes late, she would always call and let her supervisor know what was going on. And they were like, something ain't right, something just not right, so... They called, blew her phone up. They called her house 41 times, but nobody answered, which was weird. So a few of her co-workers were so concerned that two of them went to her house to investigate. And when they saw um, Donna's blue Toyota Corolla was still sitting in the driveway, and after ringing and knocking on her doorbell, um, I mean, um, ringing her doorbell and knocking on her door, that no one would come to nobody was coming to the door they were concerned enough to call the police so around 10 a.m the police showed up and together they walked around to the back of the house and walked directly into a horror movie except this wasn't jason or freddie it was lewin with that baseball bat what a scene that must have been when lewin's father saw the police According to articles for the Baltimore Sun, he said, Thank God you're here. My son killed my wife. Although Lewin's father was bleeding from his head with two skull fractures, somehow he had convinced his son that he was on his side and that he would help him get away by giving him money. I mean, I'd tell him anything to save my life too, especially if I just woke up to my former calm son waking me up out of my sleep with a bat to my head. <laughs> Lewin was arrested immediately and charged as an adult with the first degree murder of his mother and the attempted murder of his father and held without bail. Lewin's father was rushed to Sinai Hospital to treat his massive head injuries and he would go on to survive. Donna was found in the garage and pronounced dead at the scene. Known for her stylish and sophisticated way that she dressed, her punctuality, her elegant way of speaking, Donna often bragged to her co-workers about how proud of her son she was and how well-behaved he was and how he was always going to be a success. Donna had worked for the state for about a year and after Lewin was arrested, 
he calmly told the detectives that basically he just snapped under the pressure to always do right, to always good, good grades, to always be a good boy, to always be the success story that his parents had wanted and expected. Lewin told the detectives that although he was never actually abused by his parents in any way, but still, his parents had pushed him too hard to be the best and he couldn't take the pressures anymore. Lewin eventually pled guilty to murdering his mother and accepted a plea deal that would include the state dropping the attempted murder charges that he had faced for almost killing his father. At Lewin's sentencing hearing, everybody, including Donna's sisters, spoke up for Lewin. One of Lewin's aunts gave a statement saying to the court, in her words, He's a very sweet, sweet kid who never got into any trouble and never disrespected me in any way. Something happened to him. It's a mystery why he couldn't contain his anger. Another one of Lewin's aunts told the court that Lewin used to mow her lawn and help her carry her groceries in the house. She said that Lewin always had a positive outlook on life. He excelled in school, but that Lewin wasn't very street, uh, street smart. She said in her words, our parents didn't raise us to be criminals. Why didn't you reach out to us if there was something mentally wrong? Another aunt of Lewin's told the court that when she asked uh, Lewin why he hadn't asked for help, that he had told her that he thought that he could handle everything by himself. Even Lewin's father told the court that he has forgiven his son and he would welcome him back home today, tomorrow, anytime. In his words, his own father's words, he said, I think the devil got in him that night. That morning when he attacked me, I can see in his eyes that it's not him. I can hear in his voice. Prison is not going to help him. Prison is going to make him worse. Lewin's father said he don't know why his son killed his mother and attacked him that morning and that justice will be best served by helping him figure out why he did it. Lewin's attorney tried to explain things on behalf of his client saying, this is a lifetime of problems that he's been dealing with that suddenly came to a head. This particular day was the first time he ever had argued back. It wasn't just one argument about grades. He never told anyone he was going through anything. I think the lesson here is don't keep things bottled up. Even Lewin's best friend told the court, What happened with Lewin is not the person he really is. I know he's really sorry for what he did. I hope you can see that. He told the judge how they both had made plans to go to uh, Duke University together. A total of eight people spoke up in Lewin's behalf to try to basically minimize his sentence, his actions, and all of that. But when given the chance, Lewin still showed absolutely no emotion, no remorse, offered no words, no nothing, didn't look at his father or his family at all who were in the courtroom. The judge summed it all up when he said, this wasn't some snapping. This was an event that spanned 15, 16 hours. 
he basically admonished Lewin. And that day, Lewin was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility for parole. He'll be eligible for parole after serving at least 15 years. The whole time, this is what got me. Lewin still showed absolutely no emotion during his sentencing hearing. Now, let's get into it. Of course, this case made the list as one of Maryland's most notorious parasite cases. Um, neighbors, for, for her neighbors in this particular case, now a lot of people are going to be like, okay, well, his mother was Jamaican, and yeah, she probably was like, okay, he wasn't doing this right, he wasn't doing that right, blah, 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 blah. Look, uh-uh, no. No, I don't care what she was doing. A lot of neighbors, they were saying that, oh, she was always berating him for, um, she was always yelling at him and stuff for, like, the way he cut the grass and that um, they had watched him. He was always a little quiet, but they had, he had grown withdrawn over the years. Y'all reaching. Something was wrong with him mentally. Um... Just he didn't just snap, and if he did, did he snap on his father too? I mean, because she wanted the best for her son, because she got him in some good elementary schools, she got him in a, a scholarship onto McDonough. I mean, I'm sorry, you're gonna you're going to act right. I'm not saying you have to do like I said in the beginning. You don't have to get straight A's. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do that. You know, but. You're going to maintain some type of grading structure on a consistent basis while you're here because this is an, a huge opportunity that you should want to take advantage of. I mean, I mean, that's a decision that a, as any parent would not let their kid screw that up. So, yeah, I might be a little bit more, you know, demanding, a little bit more meaner, a, a little bit more serious. But it's going to pay off in the long run. So, like I said, the people was trying to excuse that when this first came out. And I was like, really? Really? I mean, I could see, nah, she she, she had him and she, was, she just basically, she wanted the best for him. This is what happens when you deal, he was, something was wrong with him mentally. When you don't show any type of emotion, when you keep everything in, you know, when you don't want to talk about nothing. You got your aunts here, you know. Um, giving victim impact statements, crying and stuff like that. And it's not even focusing on it. It's not registering. You're not hearing it. You took a bat to your father's head after you slept. Like The judge was right. This wasn't just something where, you know, he just snapped and just zapped out one day. No, you, you might have been thinking about doing this for a minute. I do believe it was definitely premeditated. You were just waiting for the right minute. Um, it, it, this is what happens when you don't talk things out. Even if you're screaming and hollering, you know, to, at your parents or whatever, at least you're still talking and they know how you feel. But when you're keeping everything in, you know, somebody said this was the first time he had ever talked back in 16 years. Damn. So I don't know. I mean, that's a little rough. That's, that's kind of hard to digest. You know, what does that say about that parenting style also? I still don't think that deserves a bat to the head and to lose your life. But when a parent asks a child, you know, what's wrong? What do you want to talk about? And all y'all say is nothing, 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 nothing. 
I mean, damn, learn how to open up your fucking mouth. Just learn how to talk. Learn how to talk. Just try it. Even if you're yelling and screaming, just learn how to talk and communicate. Because look at this. Look at the outcome. I mean, I was shocked when I heard about this story. Because, um, you know, looking at this dude and everything, he looks, he's suit and tied up. He looks like a success. He looks like, you know, a miniature executive, an attorney or something like that. He's looks like he's preppy and all of that. But he, you can't see it on his face that he would snap that easy. I mean, I wonder if all of this was worth it to him. I mean, does he regret it? Did you have remorse now when you were in that cell? Did you break down? I mean, how did you live with yourself? How do you live with yourself now? I mean, I would love to ask him all of this, you know, in person, face to face. I believe that his mother was really, truly only trying to better her son. You know, trying to um, make him make wise decisions like any parent would. I mean, he had a job, he had learners and all of that. This is probably because of his mother. And I just don't see where there was no sign of abuse. I mean, I understand, you know, she was putting him under pressure, but life is not easy. You're going to have to work hard. You can't expect everything to be easy all the time. And it would, it would, it would have been really hard for me to forgive so quickly in this case. Like, you know, I don't know. I mean, I probably would have eventually... But to forgive so quickly and be so supportive, like we understand, was she really that much of an overbearing parent? You know, that really just, this that got to me. Um, especially with the fact that, you know, what got me also is like the judge said, when, when you go to sleep and, you know, sleeping makes you calm down. It, it, that's why people be like, you know what, I'm going to sleep on it. But you woke up with violence and chose violence. So, like I said, what was on your mind while you were sleeping? And he is, that's, that's psychotic. That's psychotic behavior. He probably still suffers to this day thinking about um, what he did. His father was right. You know, that's a sentence right there for him to just think about what he did every single day that he's alive. I mean, because this one right here, this one, I'm not going to lie. This one took me out when I first heard about it. Mm. Moving right on to this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And just like in every single episode that has been in this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on homicide cases where they may have received a lot of press, a lot of attention, um, a lot of media coverage, this podcast also shines a light on the many homicide cases that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention. They don't receive a lot of press or any mention or any publicity at all. These type of murders are so common in this state that there's really not a lot of time to focus on just one because sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland... You don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report. And the number of homicides that we have in this state that are unsolved is completely staggering. I'm not even going to lie to y'all. It's unbelievably, really. They go back years. It's obvious that homicide detectives, they cannot do it all by themselves. Like what you might see on the first 48 or 
forensic files or cold cases or, you know, all the other crime shows. In Maryland, it's just not like that. No matter how many crime labs we got, homicide detectives are often overworked, underpaid, understressed, and flat out outnumbered and kept busy all the time. But I've always wondered, you know, like what happens to those cases where nobody is talking at all? What happens to those cases where absolutely no clues, no evidence, no witnesses whatsoever, nobody's coming forward for years? Or what happens to the cases where because of the victim's past or the victim's lifestyle, where it seems like the detectives ain't really trying to investigate the case because the victim's quote-unquote had it coming? What about the cases where people, you know, Tom has went on and people got a feeling who they think murdered their loved one, but they just don't really know how to prove it. What happened to those type of cases? Did it, did it, did it seem like just the killer or killer simply just got away with murder? It just seems like literally nothing is done with these forgotten homicides, not because nobody cares anymore, but because the public simply just forgot all about it because we've been bombarded by new homicides. It's like we have become immune to homicides in this state. Well, on this podcast, although I do spend a lot of time talking about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety, on the flip side, a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. And with that being said, This episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 25-year-old Damian Raymond Drew. The Windsor Inn has seen its share of violence and homicides over the years, and the night of June 6, 2003, it proved to be no different. 25-year-old Damian Raymond Drew got into an argument with a woman at the Windsor Inn in the 7200 block of Windsor Mill Road in Woodlawn, Maryland. The argument escalated and continued out into the parking lot of the bar until the woman left around 2.15 a.m. 15 minutes after the woman left the parking lot, two cars pulled into the parking lot of the Windsor Inn and drove up to Damien. One man got out of one of the cars pulled out a handgun, and shot Drew. Then both vehicles sped off. The police were called, and when they showed up at around 3.10 a.m., Damien, who lived in a 3300 block of Milford Mill Road, was pronounced dead at the scene. The two vehicles were described as 1990-1999 gold four-door Nissan Maxima, and the second vehicle was described as a 1990-1999 four-door black foreign model type of vehicle. A witness was able to provide a description of the suspects to the police, and two composite sketches were drawn up and distributed to the public, but nothing was ever done because nobody ever came forward. So if you have any information in this unsolved homicide, please call Baltimore County Detectives at 410-887-3943. 
You can also call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also text any tips to CRIMES, that's C-R-I-M-E-S, or 274-637. Once again, those numbers are Baltimore County Detectives at 410-887-3943, Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP, or you can text any tips to CRIMES, which is a C-R-I-M-E-S, and on your numeric keypad, it's 274-637. There is a $2,000 reward for any information leading to a, an arrest or a conviction in this unsolved homicide. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think I just woke up one day and then just came up with an idea to start a true crime podcast, but um, nope. It's not even really like that. There is a method, a therapeutic message to this whole true crime world of gore and murder and mayhem and all that other stuff that I live in. Um, If you click on the episode entitled, Why I Do What I Do, you'll understand more about why I'm so weird, so crazy, so fascinated with true crime. I also want my listeners to know that very, very soon, uh, I would say even before the beginning of season nine, that the documentary version, the film version of this podcast episode uh, number one, which focused on accused child murderers Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinoza, will be released very, very, very soon. And when the documentary, which was produced by Savage Life Productions and filmed on location in Baltimore City, when it will be available for download, I will definitely keep you posted as to where and how you can download it. And while you're at it, stop on over to the new website, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com. And Maryland is spelled MDS, Most Notorious Murders with an S.com, where you can access all episodes of this podcast and check out the different seasons that we have focused on, like um, teen killers. Um, you know, relationship type murders. It's so many murders that you got to group them into categories. I'm not even, I'm not even lying to you. So you can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 to 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, the True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, which is a book that every woman should read, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, which is one of my local bestsellers. You can also check me out on Season 1 of Payback, which airs for the TV1 network. You can check me out on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. 
or you can see me on tv one's justice by any means which is basically a rundown of my story again um you can check me out on tv one's fatal attraction where i profile the north carolina child murderer peter moses or you can find me hosting killer kids for the lmn network I believe that name of the episode was called Full Metal Jacket and Mommy Issues, where I profiled teen killers Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong, which was also profiled on this podcast. Um, once the season one documentary is available for download, again, you'll also be able to find the links here at MarilynsMostNotoriousMurders.com. Please, please be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome, another high profile, another savage homicide occurring in Maryland will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. This has been a Savage Life production.